VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Tammy Nelson, Ph.D., psychologist and author of The New Monogamy, Redefining Your Relationship After Infidelity. Uh, Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Tammy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, and I also want to mention that you're author of Getting the Sex You Want, so I guess this book is a segue from Getting the Sex You Want into the New Monogamy, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a buy both. (laughs) So, Tammy, what is the new monogamy? Is monogamy different now than it was before? Or explain that to us. Well, I think it's really two things. One, it's a new monogamy after infidelity or after an affair where couples are really defining their relationship in a new way. Instead of treating their partner in for someone else and hoping they do better the next time, they really have a new chance, a new relationship, a new vision of how they want it to work. And it's also for couples who haven't been affected by affairs that can create a new monogamy agreement you know, any time within their relationship. You know, a vow is not really a one-time inoculation against an affair, and I think people should renew and re-up often throughout their relationship. So this book is really about, as you describe it, I think, a chance for a new beginning in your relationship, whether it's you, one, of, one or either of you had an affair or even if you haven't had an affair, but it's all about establishing, I think, new ways of communicating to enhance the relationship. But you know what? I also want to... Let's talk about the statistics about infidelity because I was getting my hair cut and colored the other day and I was my uh, my um, hairdresser was saying, well, you know, who are you having on the show this week? And I mentioned that it was you and I talked about the new monogamy and she put down the scissors and she was really interested uh, in in the topic of infidelity. I'm not sure if she was had had, uh, had some infidelity relationships herself or what, but anyway. But what are the stats? Because they're pretty high. Yeah, they are. You know, anywhere from 40 to 60% of people will cheat at some point in their marriage. Although, you know, it's hard to get really good numbers because you know, infidelity is based on dishonesty. So people lie to the researchers. <laughs> but we think anywhere from, you know, 45% of women and up to 60, 65% of men will cheat. And, you know, that is pretty high. But the divorce rates are still hovering around 50%. So we know that, you know, half of, half of us are still getting divorced. You know, 40 to 60 percent of us who are staying married are cheating. And I think, I think couples are tired of those odds and they want to know that, you know, there's another way that they want to stay together and they don't want to stay together just for the kids or just for the mortgage. They really want to make their relationship work. But if they stay, okay, they want to make their relationship work. They want to have a good relationship. But how many people actually get divorced because they are aware that their spouse or partner has had an affair? Well, you know, divorce attorneys say that uh, the reason that um, 
uh, they show up in court is probably anywhere from 35 to 75% of the time because of infidelity. But, you know, it's hard to say because a lot of infidelity now is about technology, you know, the Internet, Facebook, social media. You know, this is really the first time in history that you can cheat on a partner lying in bed next to them. There's no precedent for that. So you can have an affair that doesn't necessarily have to do with a sexual relationship but an emotional relationship with somebody else on the net. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, depending on what your monogamy agreement is, what your uh, perspective of monogamy is with your partner, sometimes having a Facebook friend can feel like cheating or looking at pornography can feel like infidelity. You know, having an emotional affair with someone at work, you know, being really close to your cube mate, if you will, you know, the person that you spend all your time with at the office and share all the details of your marriage, you can be much closer to them even than your spouse. And that kind of emotional infidelity for many couples is more painful almost than a sexual relationship. Are we redefining or are you redefining monogamy then? Because as I understood monogamy, maybe before the Internet, monogamy was, and you still could have an emotional relationship with somebody at work, but monogamy meant that you were sleeping, you were having sex or sexual intercourse with someone else other than your partner. Right. And, you know, now it is changed. I think you're right. So when we get married, we don't say, you know, I I promise to love and honor you until till death do we part through sickness and in health and through all your Facebook friends. And, <laughs> <laughs> right? So we are seeing a different type of monogamy. We do have to have a different conversation because there is a new monogamy continuum. It has to be a different conversation, I think, than we've ever had before. And so when there's a betrayal with that, you know, implicit assumption, you know, you know what, what monogamy should be and I know what monogamy should be and, of course, we believe it should be the same thing. And then we're surprised when there's that, you know, misunderstanding, if you will, or that, um, you know, that, that hurt that happens so often after someone cheats. And so that new conversation that happens after that betrayal in my office so often starts with, well, wait a minute, you know, what should our new monogamy be? Is it okay for you to have friends um, and not tell me when you go out to lunch? Is it okay to, you know, friend, quote-unquote, your your ex-boyfriend from college? You know, what is monogamy going to mean to us going forward? Well, as a therapist, and you obviously you're seeing these couples all the time in your practice, you're in New York City, is it possible for couples to get married at age 26 or 27 and be monogamous for 50 years? I mean, is that a possibility, or is it? are you setting up some kind of an expectation that doesn't really exist? Well, you know, you're right. I mean, that is a big expectation. You know, 250, 300 years ago, we only lived to be 38 years old. So we were married for an average of, you know, 15, 20 years. You know, you can live with anyone for that amount of time. And women died in childbirth, so men had a second uh, <laughs> wife. And, I mean, you can go on and on with those kinds of statistics. So back to my question, is it possible? All right. Right. Well, and, you know, plus we were busy working in the fields, and you know, there wasn't a lot of time. Yeah. So and we didn't have TV and stay up late, and, you know, people people went to bed early, and, you know, they had a lot of children. There's a lot of different things going on now, but, you know, we're, we're really basing marriage on the same principle, that you 
marry someone you're attracted to that you desire. And, you know, attraction and desire happens in this space between you. You long for something you don't have. And, you know, when it's sitting on the couch next to you every night, not so much. So that attraction, that longing, that desire, you know, is a principle that's supposed to last for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, sometimes 70 years. And so many people feel so disappointed in themselves. They feel like there's something wrong with me that I don't feel that same feeling. Or there's something wrong with you. So if I trade you in for a different model, then I'll get it right. Or, you know, it's the soulmate idea that I must have picked the wrong person. So I'll go out and find the right person. Well, is the premise of your book then if you, if you, let's say, get divorced and you get married again, unless you work on those communicating with one another about what your expectations are, the same thing is going to happen with the second person after sitting on the couch with them for five years. Right. Well, and that's absolutely right. You know, second marriages end at a rate of 70%. So what do we do? I, How do we handle I mean, what do <laughs> Let's talk about this new monogamy. I mean, we've set the stage for it, but all right, so... Um, Let's set up a, an example of a couple that you see in in, th- in your therapy, in your practice, who comes in and, and one of them has had an affair, and I guess the other person either found out or they told them because that has that's different too, depending on how they find out about the affair, isn't it? Yeah, I mean the difference between disclosure and discovery is, um, you know, a difference in the way that people are betrayed. So, in other words, if somebody discovers an email, then, you know, and then confronts their partner, and their partner says, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not mine. That's much different than if somebody comes home and says, oh, you know, I had this, you know, temporary slip where I, you know, kissed someone at a conference when I had a few drinks, and I'm so sorry, and we have to go to therapy right away. You know, that that type of honesty really goes a long way towards repairing a relationship, because the one thing that people have the most difficulty getting over is the dishonesty. You know, when you talk about healing from trust, you know, that's the part that people have a difficulty with repairing. Can we talk about different situations? Because, okay, dishonesty, that is, I can understand trust, that's the most difficult thing. Is it different for a couple who say, when you sort of started out giving that example, like one of them goes on a business trip and maybe not just kisses somebody, has a one-night stand. Is that different than if you're having an affair with your best friend's uh, husband for three years? (laughs) Well, you know, there's really three parts to an affair. There's an outside emotional relationship, there's a sexual piece, and then there's the dishonesty. So for some people, that outside emotional relationship with, you know, my best friend is the part that just tears me up. For other people, it's the fact that you actually cross the line and you had sex with someone else. And for other people, I can live with the fact that you had sex with her. I could even live with the fact that you had an emotional connection with her as long as you don't leave me for her. But I can't live with the fact that you lied and you hid it from me. And worse, when I confronted you, you said, I don't know what you're talking about. That didn't happen. You're making it up. And you tried to, you know, what I call gaslight me or make me feel like the crazy one. You know, for some people, it's that piece that's difficult. So, you know, for other people, you know, two-thirds of gay couples, they say, are not necessarily sexually monogamous, but they're emotionally monogamous. So as long as I'm the primary person in your life, the most unique, I don't necessarily have to be totally 
sexually exclusive as long as we're emotionally exclusive. It sounds like, though, when you're describing the different, well, heterosexual couples, gay couples, um, but even just individual couples all have very different expectations for what monogamy is. And I guess that's, is that what we're talking about? And then the couples have to kind of be on the same page with that and to be able to communicate? Well, your, your question is exactly on target, and it's not just gay and straight couples. It's every couple. Every couple really does have a different expectation. You know, like you said earlier, we all think we know what monogamy means. Just don't sleep with anyone else. But really, every couple has a different expectation of what monogamy is. Is masturbation private or secret? Is, you know, going to a party and dancing with someone else okay or not okay? Like, where do you cross the line? Is going online and chatting with a stranger, does that mean you're cheating? You know, we really do have uh, different implicit assumptions about what monogamy means. And then we very rarely have those conversations. We have an explicit conversation, but we don't have, you know, those nuanced conversations of, of what monogamy should mean at different times in our life because, frankly, they change. Developmentally, our relationship changes over time. And just because you make that one-time promise, you know, when you're younger or when you first get married, doesn't mean you don't have to revisit the ideas over time. All right, so then that's very specific. So let's say you, you, you're committed to somebody in your early 20s and you have to be very clear with each other about what monogamy is to you. But then you keep, as you say, the relationship evolves, so then you have to win. Check in every few years and, and talk about or just continually talk about what monogamy is to both of you. Or how does that work in practice? Well, you know, it's interesting. You have to renew your license every couple of years. You have to, you know, you have to renew your gym membership. Why wouldn't you renew your marriage contract? You know, it's fascinating to me. And the other piece is, you know, monogamy is a, is a practice. It's a choice that you make every day. And in order to get better at it, this idea of marriage or committed partnership, you have to practice it almost like meditation or yoga or playing the piano. So why would you assume that you should just know how to do it and know exactly what your partner needs and how they need it? Why would you assume that you didn't have to talk about it? So one of the ways that I think works great is to renew or talk about your monogamy agreement every year on your anniversary or every year at New Year's or every two years or every five years. But whichever way you choose to do it, to have a discussion about what is our monogamy agreement and what what do we want to change? What do we want to expand upon? How do we want to make our relationship really special, regardless of what other people do in their monogamy agreement? It doesn't really matter. And as a therapist, I'm not deciding for you what it should look like. I'm just helping you have the conversation. Let's say the couple hasn't done this, and obviously you see many couples who haven't done this, and one or the other has an affair of, you know, the, we've described and the other person is devastated by the dishonesty. Um, you talk about in the book how you can, let's say that's happened, you can actually end up with a better relationship after someone has had an affair or has not been, has had after infidelity. 
Yeah, I mean, I've actually had many couples that have said to me, you know, maybe this affair was the best thing that ever happened to us. And, you know, with all due respect for anyone who's listening, who's throwing things at the radio saying, you know, I just, I just went through this and I don't feel that way. You know, there's different phases of recovery after an affair. And in the first phase, you're in a crisis and it feels like you've been hit by a train and your emotions are all over the place. It could be devastating. So absolutely, you are not in the place where you want to, you know, um, maybe even forgive your partner. But, you know, after you get to the second or the third place, um, the phase of recovery really can be a quite insightful place where you can look at your affair and say, you know, maybe this was not our affair. Maybe, maybe this happened to, you know, to us. Maybe it wasn't just about you. And in that space, people can really make some major shifts in their relationship. And they can really have some incredible insight into, into how they might change, grow, communicate in new ways, and move their relationship along in a way that they hadn't ever really thought about before. And in your experience, you think that that, that really does work. That's a possibility in, in most or many cases where there's been infidelity. What about, you know, I'm just thinking about this as you're talking. What about infidelity when the person, the other person, or one of the persons in the couple never admit to it? It's always there, but they never are able actually to admit to it. But there's always something going on or between the, the two, of, uh, between the couple, and uh, the other p- person just is never able to admit that they've been, you know, they've had a, a relationship outside the, the, uh, the marriage or the partnership. Um. Meaning that there's a secret. There's a secret. There's a secret. Yeah. Yeah. There's a secret. I mean, I've had. I I guess where I'm I'm coming from is I've had clients, but I've also had girlfriends who was. You know, I I had a one night stand, but I am never going to tell my my spouse ever. Right. But it always seems to. But but it's there. Some and and they never do. I don't know if there's any if you've had that experience or not. But what do you do with it? Well, you know, I think there's a difference between holding information to protect your partner and then when your partner confronts you and asks you a question directly lying about it you know many people will keep a secret to protect their partner that's much different um you know that's a choice that people make and you know who am i to judge um you know sharing um, an affair that happened 10 years ago because you think you know, I have to confess, is that to make you feel better or to make your partner feel better? I don't know. So, you know, there's as many different types of affairs as there are couples. And it may be that, you know, some things are better left unsaid. But I think if you're confronted directly by your partner and you lie to them, you know, that dishonesty would be um, a whole uh, a whole different challenge to deal with throughout the course of your relationship. Well, in the book, you have actual checklists and questionnaires. Let's talk about some of those so that you can really, as a couple, find out where you're coming from. Sure, sure. And I think those are incredibly helpful for uh, any couple, even if they haven't been through infidelity. And what I mean by that is um, those questions and those question airs, if you will, are a way for people to explore the monogamy continuum. So there's different 
context. In other words, you know, what if I have fantasies about someone else? What if you, I, I... You know what? You're echoing now. Are you on uh, speakerphone? Oh. oh, that's really great. Okay, I'll move my head. Yeah. Is that better? <laughs> yeah, that's... Yes. And can you hear me okay? Yeah, now it's great. Okay, perfect. So um, I was saying in different, different categories, there's different contexts. So... You know, having a conversation about what if I have a fancy about someone else? What if I meet someone in the supermarket, say, and I think, oh, I love this person. We had a chat in the checkout line, and they gave me their phone number, and I'm having a fantasy of calling them. Should I come home and tell you? Or, you know, what if I just throw out their phone number and nothing ever happens? You know, is that something that, I, that we should be honest about and confess? In other words, you know, is, is fantasy a slippery slope that leads towards infidelity? Those kind of questions are on that questionnaire. When do you talk? Because some people think, look, if it's just a fantasy and you never cross the line, why bring it up? It's just hurtful. Other people feel like, look, if you're cheating in your heart, you're cheating. And that's a real, um, a real and valid conversation to have. Um, I think Jimmy Carter said, you know, I've cheated in my heart. heart. <laughs> Yeah, you know, coveting your neighbor's wife. You know, it's real. It's very real for some people. For other people, they think, you know, the reality is statistically, ninety-eight percent of people fantasize about someone other than their spouse. Well, to Which me, is fine for a, me. Yeah, I, I would think that that's a healthy thing to do. I mean, if you can't fantasize and you have to tell your partner every time you have a fantasy thought, I mean, that could you could become obsessed with it. That could drive you both of you crazy. I would think. <laughs> well, it's okay for me to think about someone else, but not my husband. Yeah, well, that's different, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then there's other things, you know, on the questionnaire about, you know, can we have, you know, friends of the opposite sex or the sex that we're attracted to? And, you know, all the way to, you know, is it okay to have um, some kind of sexual experience with another couple? You know, a lot of people now are actually having some open sexual behaviors while still staying emotionally monogamous. You know, they have maybe sex with another person on the weekend, even though during the week they consider themselves a very conservative couple. You know, so we think of that maybe as swinging or being in an open marriage. They would never call themselves that because they have rules about, well, we only do this together and we never, you know, we don't tell anyone else and we never contact that person outside of our Saturday night, and, you know, so that's really at the far end of the continuum. But even people like that can cheat, you know, they they have a rule that you don't contact this person outside of our relationship. Well, if you call that person to have lunch with the next day, then you, you're having an affair. There are rules of the game, I guess, rules of the game for each couple, and you really have to be clear about what those rules are. And I guess in, in your book, you can kind of hone in on what the questions to ask yourself and what to ask your partner. And I think the other thing is, we only have a couple of minutes left, but what you're saying is yeah. relationships evolve. And as they're evolving, you need to reevaluate or evaluate what's going on and be able to communicate that to your partner. Is that it? I think you got it, and you nailed it when you said communicate, because I think... It's the honesty and the communication. And when people say that communication is the key, they don't really know what what you really mean by that. They want to communicate, but they don't really know how to begin the conversation or have the dialogue about it. And this is just a way to help people start the conversation, have a new dialogue about monogamy, be really honest with themselves and with each other about what they desire, 
Now, just because you share what you want doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get it. It's almost more important to have the conversation, to explore the possibilities, and to explore your fears. You know, I'm afraid that if you have a Facebook friend, it could lead to something that will make me uncomfortable. Even having the conversation changes your relationship. A monogamy agreement should include open communication and honesty about your fears, your desires, and your needs going forward. That is a new monogamy. It's a new vision of a new kind of relationship going forward. I think that's well said because, you know, you don't have to have an answer to everything or you don't have to have – you You can just – just by saying it. And, you know, and sometimes when you say something or express your fears to your partner, they may be not ready to – actually talk to you about it while you know at that particular time but you've said it and they can think about it and mull over it and maybe the you know the conversation comes up much later and that's okay anyway we have to say goodbye but i want to mention the book again obviously the new monogamy redefining your relationship after infidelity tammy nelson phd great having you on the show this morning and we can go to your website is dr tammy nelson.com Yep, it's Tammy Nelson with DR in front of it. So it's drtammynelson.com, and people can find the book there and other information about how to recover from affairs. Great. Thanks so much, Dr. Nelson. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Great talking to you. We are going to take a short break, and coming up next is Patricia O. Gorman, and uh, we're going to be talking about her new book, The Resilient Woman, Mastering the Seven Steps to Personal Power. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Patricia O. Gorman, Ph.D., internationally recognized psychologist, coach, and public speaker for her work on women's issues, trauma, substance abuse, and her new book is The Resilient Woman, Mastering the Seven Steps to Personal Power. And it's great because this really does follow my first guest. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Patricia. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. 
Great to have you. Okay, so the resilient woman. But my first what is the who is the resilient woman? What does that mean? Well, what that means is consciously using our strengths for ourselves. As women, we tend to go through our day and um, you know be putting out fires all over the place, taking care of the kids, working on job, blah blah blah. And what we don't tend to do is take a you know a milli step back and say, wow. You know, I accomplished a lot today. I'm really good at this. The resilient woman is a woman who really owns her strengths and not just uses her strengths on behalf of the world, but really owns them internally. So if we own our strength, what is that going to do for us? Like you do describe many women, yeah, they take care of their families, they take care of the their boss, they take care of everybody else, I, I guess what you're saying, but themselves, and they need to take a look at their own strengths. What's that going to do for us? Well, what that does for us um, is actually, I think, totally change the game. <laughs> because when we begin to focus and see ourselves as strong, um, we have been so brainwashed in our society to really see ourselves as weak and needing another. Um, I call this in my book, Girly Thoughts. Uh, it starts with um, all these uh, wonderful fairy tales we've all been raised on about needing to be rescued, and it continues. Um, it continues right now. I mean, we're seeing we're seeing this slowly chipped away with women being granted combat pay after many years of being in combat because women weren't supposed to be in combat, but the women pushed back. Um, we we tend to hold this image of ourselves that we don't even realize we have. I, last week, was in um, Nevada on a radio show, and a woman called in, and she said, I'm 54 and a model, And um, but every day I wake up and I look at my face and I get depressed because I don't look like me. And I said, what does that mean? She said, well, of course, they Photoshop my pictures, and I don't look like that. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, we're still doing that to them. Well, we are, just, we're, yeah. you, but, but the thing is, we do that to ourselves. Girl, but you, know, you, you just mentioned that example as a woman. She's she's fifty four. You said, yes. is that still true of the young women in their twenties and thirties? Are they still stuck in this girly girl stuff? They uh, absolutely one, yeah. are. It's not unusual in certain parts in the United States for girls to start getting Botox in their teens or early 20s. Um, certainly breast augmentation in certain parts of our country is just common. <laughs> you know, it's, we have to look a certain way, and, um, and we feel our self-worth is tied into that, as opposed to saying, you know, it's great, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with my big hips or my wide lips or um, I'm comfortable being short. <laughs> you know, I'm a worthwhile person even though I'm five foot two. It, it, we just, we berate ourselves. And men, men have other things, by the way, but they don't have that. <laughs> does this come from our mothers? Does this come from society or does this come from both or our family of origin or what? Because I'm going to tell you some comes, of my it, issues that are it, not that, but have some of the same problems that you've discussed in the book. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, that, it's but, just pervasive. It's everywhere. Um, what really, I wrote a book 19 years ago on women and resilience called Dancing Backwards in High Heels. And I talked about women and resilience, and it's an issue I've been interested in and been monitoring. But what put me over the edge, and I realized I really need to come back to this issue, and I wound up writing a totally new book on it, was 
we have all these pictures of women that are digitally enhanced that women feel oppressed because they can't be that person. They can never have their legs that long. Um, two, three weeks ago in Vogue, um, there was a bit of a splash because a model had about four inches taken off of her waist, or maybe it was a little more, but the article I read said that if her waist was real, her waist would have been 12 inches wide. Now, since this is our standard of beauty, this is crazy. And well, is it just related to our beauty, though? It seems to me that, you know, that it's, it's even more than that, not just how we look, but our expectations for success are different. For instance, I mean, yes. maybe one of the reasons why how many, we, I mean, we, I'm always getting back to this on the show, how many women are heads of corporate, you know, CEOs of the major Fortune 500 companies? Right. What, you count them on your one hand? I don't even think on two hands. Um, does that have to do with beauty or looks? Or even it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? Well, what, what the equation is, I think, for these girly thoughts is if I don't measure up, and it begins in tweenhood, you know, very early, then somehow I'm deserving of all the crap I get. Or if I stand outside of the perceived norm, then I'm going to get grief too. Um, I heard an interview with Sheryl Sandberg maybe a week ago. And she said in high school, she was voted most likely to succeed, but she told the person or the committee that was doing that she didn't want that designation because she was afraid she wouldn't get a date to the prom. We, we do this to ourselves, and we limit ourselves, and we limit ourselves based on this perception of this narrow band we have to fit into. So, yes, we don't push for the jobs, um, or we feel we need... Um, more experience and, you know, all this other stuff. We have to be perfect we, before we, we ask for be, a raise or be before perfect. we ask for a promotion. Yes. Uh, you know, we will wait a year after we've had a job before we'll do something to promote ourselves. And as I understand it, the statistics, and you know better than I, men after six months, even if they're not that good, will say, you know what, they'll ask for a raise, they'll ask for a promotion. If they don't get it, fine. Yes, they're not, they're not as wed to needing to fit into some sort of cultural stereotypes as women are. And, um, and you're right, we, we have this in the workplace, we have this in our personal life, and it defeats us. It, it limits us, it defeats us, and we can begin to challenge that. And that's what my book is about, about challenging how we oppress ourselves. <laughs> you know? And okay, I'm assuming that that comes from some, from you, from your own personal experience. I don't know if you want to talk about it, but like, all right, you're a psychologist. You're successful. You've written at least two books or more. So, what was your experience? Did you feel like you are a resilient woman or not, or did you have to work on on and on yourself so that you were not someone who uh, succumbed to all of this uh, feeling bad about yourself or that you had to be beautiful to write a book or whatever it is? Well, my my journey, um, and I, um, I talk about this in the book, that there really isn't just one form of resiliency, that there are really, I have six styles of resiliency because resiliency is an inner, it's our response to the stressor in front of us. And I began 19 years ago, or actually earlier, playing with this because I began seeing many women um, who were very functional during the day, you know, took care of business, ran their office, were, 
you know, whatever they were doing, and then would go home and kind of lose their power and uh, be asked, um, you know, by their partner, well, what TV show do you want to watch? And they'd have no opinion. Um, they would real or go home to an abusive relationship, and they would uh, disempower themselves. And so I talk about different styles of resilience, and yes, I noticed that in myself. Um, probably the most common style of resilience is what I call paradoxical resilience, which is women who use your strengths in one part of their life, but then don't use them in another part of their life. And they treat themselves almost like they're two different people. And you know, I see that played out in lots of women. It's just one of the six styles, but this whole, it's kind of a paradox. You know, how can you be strong here and have, you know, really fade away here? Well, I guess I want you to answer that question, how can you, because I see that too. We had dinner, this was in New York a few months ago, with a couple. This woman is a very high-powered businesswoman, MBA from Harvard, mm-hmm. and we're, sit- we're having dinner, and this is a small thing, but I thought this is kind of indicative, this, this paradoxical example that you're giving, yeah. and we're sitting there, and she orders her dinner, and then she turns to him and asks him, what kind of wine we should have. So they discuss it because they wanted to get the wine. And then the waiter brings the wine and she has him taste it. Like she, and I thought, why isn't she tasting the wine? She made Mm -hmm. this, actually made this suggestion about what bottle of wine to have. She gave up her power. Now maybe that's a seemingly not that no, no, it's important. a beautiful example. It's yeah. a beautiful because we we do that. It's like our girly thoughts. Well, the man is supposed to be in charge, you know. And if we make that conscious, we can laugh at it, and then we can we can taste the wine we ordered, you know. But we tend we're so programmed, and that's a great example. You you asked me about myself. I I realized one day when I was had had seen a number of women, and I was driving home because uh, I live in Columbia County, even though I have my office in Albany, and um, I was, you know, my inner conversation, and that's one of my steps, um, is to really tune up the volume on your resilient voice. My inner conversation was sorting the laundry. I was thinking, do I start with a dark load or a light load? I wasn't thinking I help this couple get back together, I'm getting this kid more engaged in school. You know, I wasn't thinking about my successes during the day. I was problem-solving the laundry. And I realized that's crazy. That's how I disempower myself. And, and I think as women, we, can, we do that, and we, we can choose not to do that. Disempower yourself. You know, that is, that is the term. And I think I'm always concerned with this always comes up. I mean, I have a partner of 25 years, um, and he and I, I'm, I'm always afraid of like, and I think about it because you're talking, you know, I'm always evaluating myself as well. Uh, the fear of emasculating, you know, if I do something like that, you know, if I talk about my successes or you're going to mm-hmm. talk about your success at work rather than, you know, with what kind of laundry you're going to do, the, <laughs> the darks or the whites, yeah. um, are you going to emasculate your partner if they haven't maybe achieved what you've achieved? Or maybe, you know, there are just, there's so many nuances to this, aren't there? You know, that, that, that there, there are, there are those nuances, but it's again our girly thoughts talking about that the man has to be strong. I would think that anybody, and we've never met, <laughs> just for anyone listening, <laughs> well, meeting now. but anyone meeting you or getting to know you, you're a pretty strong personality, and my guess is 
your your strong personality did not develop a couple of years ago. So obviously he was attracted to that. And I think that that's how we do a number on ourselves. We, and then we worry as women, um, what ha- you know, your, fir- your first interview was about what happens in the marriage. What happens in the marriage? Because we have changed. We're not the feisty person who that, you know, met this guy 30 years ago and five years ago. We have morphed into what we think he wants. And you know what? When I work with couples on this, the guy doesn't want that. <laughs> he wants back the woman he met with all the problems, with all the conflicts. You know, he's, you know, that's, we, we tiptoe around issues that really aren't there that are much more cultural issues than they are relationship issues. And then we get ourselves tied into knots. We become pretzel women um, because we're constantly trying to, you know, shape and shift when that's not necessary. Patricia, so are we making these assumptions about what we think our partner wants yes. or our spouse wants? Yes. And they may or may not want that, but even if they do, we still have to, you know, what we want is just as important anyway, but we're, you know, are concerned about, I'm thinking about what you said, what our kids want or what they think a good mother should be or, you know, all of those things. We're defining ourselves in relationship to all our other relationships, I guess. Yes, and as women, we're programmed to do that. Maybe, you know, the research is showing maybe we're even hardwired to do that, but it doesn't mean we have to do that to our own detriment just because we are so tuned in um, to other people doesn't mean we can't also be tuned into ourselves. And when I talk about resiliency, I talk about really being tuned into yourself and your strength. And people have asked me, why, do you, why did you start the book and your first step is on crisis? And my answer is because that tends to be what gets our attention. (laughs) When we're in a crisis, we think, oh, God, what am I going to do now? Um, And so that's that's the beginning point um, to get our attention to figure out what we're going to do. And what we need to do is listen to ourselves as well as listening to everyone else. It's just not about bashing the men in our lives or not being a good mother or, you know, cutting out at work. It's about taking care of ourselves as well as taking care of business. All right, you're talking about a crisis, and that's true. I think crises do are the things that motivate people to do something. You know, maybe your husband has an affair or your partner or uh, something happens with one of your kids or whatever. But do we have to get to that point? Do you have to have a crisis before you'll start you know, doing some of these things that are going to be helpful to us as women so that we will be powerful and we'll accept our personal power? Do we have to wait for a crisis? I don't think we have to wait for a crisis, but we can certainly, an easy place to begin when women say, well, how do I build my resilience? I say, well, look back on the crisis you've had and how have you handled them? Because we've all had them. All of us have gone through things we truly wish we never, never had to face. Um, you know, all of us, that's, you know, life is full of these awful moments and we get through them. So looking back, what worked for us? What didn't work for us? You know, what skills do we have? Maybe what skills do we want to learn? But what skills do we have kind of in our back pocket so we can, you know, walk through life feeling at least fortified that, you know, we know how to do this and we know how to do that, and it's conscious. It's not just, you know, we have to rediscover it. Um, that so acknowledging our it. skills, the skills are there. We've done it. We've accom- we have skills. Yes. It's gotten us through yes. 
certain things and we can use them again. It reminds me of when my youngest son graduated from Middlebury, Giuliani gave the talk, and there was a lot of controversy about his, whether he should speak, but regardless of what your politics are, the speech was very good because he did exactly what you're talking about. They asked him, you know, he talked about 9-11. How did he mm-hmm. handle it? How was he able to? He said, I drew upon all, I had all the experience. I had been through many, many crises. And yes. I took that experience and used it, even though this was the biggest crisis of my what, political life or yeah. even personal, and took those skills and handled the crises, which, I, which is what you're saying. Yes, and we, as, as women, we can do that too. We tend to default to have men do that, but as women, we can do that. We can walk around you know, walking tall that we've been through a lot and we've gotten through it, and that can also help reduce our anxiety when we see something coming towards us. But we yeah. don't take credit for it. No, don't we don't. We take and credit for it. I mean, we sort of do it under the yeah radar. Under the tip. Kind of, yeah, yeah. And um, and it, that's why I said it's a game changer when we walk around saying we're going to take credit for it. Yeah, I, you know? I think, yeah, it is a game changer, and it I think taking game. yeah taking credit for it, and yeah, you know, even though we do it, or many of us do it, but we do do it under the radar. And you have, I think you have to say it and acknowledge it. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And you have to list your strengths and say, I, you know, I am, I know how to do this. I, and say it to ourselves, even if we don't want to say it out loud. Then we could start acting like we know how to do it. And that begins to shift things in relationships around us, even with our children. And I've been raising twin boys. <laughs> And I've raised three boys. You have three boys. Yeah. I, it's, it's a different picture there with boys. Yeah, it's a very, it is. They, they don't have as much difficulty acknowledging all this stuff. It is it's very well, different. They, they, but men have, men have a different rap in our yes. society. I mean, men are allowed to be strong, and I'm speaking very broadly now, yes. and women are not. But, you know, we, have, we still have this thing we do with our guys that they shouldn't be emotional. And um, every time I hear that, you know, the, in terrorist situations, the men were separated from the women and the, the, the men were killed, my heart breaks. It's like that's somehow, like, okay, even though it's terrible. And, you know, we, we do another number with our men. But with women, the focus of the book is we can acknowledge our strengths. We can listen to our inner voice, our resilient voice, and turn up the volume on that and turn down the volume on all those other voices we have in there. We can learn to set clear boundaries and stop setting ourselves up by having mush around us. Um, it's you know, also we, scary, though. I think it's kind of there, and, I, I, and as I've done some of the things that you have described in the book, hopefully, not all of them, obviously, but... Um, it's scary when you start taking responsibility for yourself because in a way you can always, if you're under the radar with this stuff, nobody really knows about it. So if you like screw up, no one's going to know that either. And there's that emotional, well, he can take care of it even if he's not, you know, so that when you actually do take responsibility for yourself as you're describing it, it's scary because then people are going to have the expectations that you have to continue to do that. Well, it may be scary, but it's also thrilling it's thrilling to step into our own power. It's thrilling to know that we can do it. In fact, to look back to realize we've always been doing it. You know, we have this fantasy that we need to be rescued and taken care of. The reality is we take care of ourselves. We are a very strong gender. Um, we are the gender that has been given the ability to create birth, life and carry it and give birth. 
um, you know, there's a lot biologically that's very strong about us. Um, you know, we can look to the animal kingdom where we, you know, we talk about lions. Well, the female lion is the hunter, not the male. Um, we need to let that in. We need to let that in, and um, we need to let it in for many reasons, one of which is health in American women is going downhill because we're not taking care of ourselves. I think part of it is that we get are getting increasingly oppressed by this, you know, this image of what we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to look and how we're supposed to act, and we're, you know, we're eating chocolate to take care of ourselves <laughs> or we're not eating at all or we're exercising to the point of injury. Um, you know, we have to be, we have to, we are the only person that we will spend our whole life with. And we need to treat ourselves much more caring and nurturing like we treat the people we love in our life and uh, learn to love ourselves. Are there role models that you would, that you look to or that we can look to or that young women can look to to say, wow, there's somebody who's really doing it? I think there are within each of our families female role models that we can copy. And we can look to the women in our family and their stories and understand their strengths and how they showed their strengths and how they could have shown their strengths. So I I think it's it's a little tricky to look to women out there. I'd rather encourage women to look within themselves, within their family, and um, to poke around in there and kind of um, maybe change the ending of some of the stories that are in each of our families um, and um, to reframe things so therefore we begin to speak about the power of women, uh, the comp- you know, compassion and concern of women and the power of women in our family because we all draw our sense of identity initially from our families. So we might as well start there, go forward, and then push it out. And sometimes that's not easy to do. I mean, I come from a family where it was definitely patriarchal, mm-hmm. and uh, but very, um, you know, but the women in my, as you're describing, the women, my mother, my grandmother, are strong women. And perhaps I don't, and I know my mother's listening, so I'm uh-huh. <laughs> taking my words. <laughs> um, I'm being very careful, but uh, but they too didn't acknowledge their strengths. And I, I think that, it, just as you're describing it, and that that's part of the problem. But if you're saying if we look at our mothers or our grandmothers or our sisters or aunts or whoever, um, we can acknowledge their strengths and then take from that. Yes, we can. We can acknowledge it. Um, we can maybe help them acknowledge it, and we can also understand the code in which they spoke about their strengths, um, and we can decode it for them, for us, for our children. Um, for ourselves, um, that, you know, we we all we are we are the products of those who survived. So there's a lot of strength in there. A lot of strength. Yeah, we are the products of those who survived. We're surviving, mm-hmm. and I think another word that and you sort of touched on this um, a few minutes ago, but we're very. I think one of our strengths as women, and I am generalizing, but. Mm-hmm. We're flexible, and this we really we have a lot of flexibility. Physically, yes. we're flexible. Emotionally, we're flexible. Right. And I think there's a lot more flexibility in the way we operate as just human beings. So I know I'm generalizing than than men who there's a, a more of a rigidity in their behavior, and that's a real strength for us. That flexibility. Yes, I think women are enormously flexible, and um, we need to again take credit for that, as you're saying, 
And um, we need to notice how we use our resiliency in our lives. You know, is it is it flexibility in our thinking? Is it owning the best that's in us? Um, is it realizing we can learn from past experiences? There are, I have a little quiz in the book about, you know, do you use your resilience? You know, just to begin to start there, you know, what do I use that's working for me? What, what are some of Just mention a couple of the questions maybe so that we can get a Well, you know, do, you know, do you look to yourself for solutions? Do you ask yourself what worked the last time um, I was in this situation? Um, you know, can, do we feel we can learn from crises? Um, uh, can you accomplish the tasks in front of you and feel, feel good about them? Uh, do you have an inner optimism? You know, which is very important. That's one of my steps is to, no matter what is happening, think positive thoughts. It's the best revenge is the step because, you know, if we keep, if we keep ourselves focused on what is right, it, it makes whatever is in front of us so much easier. And we feel more control over it. Um, and part of our resilience is also accepting some things can't be changed. Um, and that helps you focus on what you can change. And allowing you to say no is a complete sentence because that's not going to work and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's okay to say no. Oh, yes. Think- it's, it's a good word. No is a good word. And especially for women. <laughs> yeah, especially for women because yeah. we've been taught we don't really say no. And then I think all, a lot of that reputation for being manipulative comes into play because you can't really say no but you you say it but it's sort of like it's all part of the getting people to do what you want and and maybe that's maybe not so much our generation I'm talking baby boomers but the the generation before us there was a lot of manipulation women got what they wanted but it wasn't really it was underhanded well but you know that was that was the game then the game is changing now, and can we get in front of this and make this really work for us? Yeah. Do you think, are you optimi- talking about optimistic or optimism, do you think we are beginning to do that as women, as a group? I think so, and I think, um, I think uh, 2013 is the year of the woman. Um, I think we're seeing a number of women's books come out, mine included. I think something is happening. <laughs> And I'm very, I'm very excited. Um, 13, as we know, is a lucky number for women. Well, it is for me. My mother was born on April 13th. Ah, well, it's also when, you know, in early religions, you know, preliterate religions, early religions, you know, when we uh, worship the fertility goddess, 13 was a lucky number because we, it was the number of times within a year that a woman would become fertile. And, of course, when the patriarchy came in, you know, out with the old and with the new, that became an unlucky number. But, you know, for women, this year. I 2013, think this is the year. This is this the year is the for year. us. This well, is the we year. have to say goodbye. This was great. Yeah. And um, Thank you so yeah, much. Took a this lot. wonderful. The, I want to mention your book again, The Resilient yes. Woman, Mastering yes. the Seven Steps to Personal Power, and your website. PatriciaOgorman.com. PatriciaOgorman.com. Thanks so much yes. for being on the show. Thank you, and I have a book signing tomorrow at the Bookhouse in Stavson Plaza. Great. At the, I'm, I may see you there. Oh, that would be lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Take care. Thank okay, you. Okay, great. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Thursday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. 
You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.